0: Well, good morning, Awakening Church family. My name is Joe Yarbrough, and I'm excited to be speaking to you guys again. I'm finishing up a talk that I did two weeks ago called Circles. And uh, what I was talking about was we were talking about conflict resolution and what the Bible has to say about that, but also why the Bible has something to say about that. I mean, conflict is always going to be a part of our life. We talked about two weeks ago that It's as certain as death and taxes. But for us as believers, how are we called to handle that? And also, how do we kind of right-size conflict in our life as we continue on? So last time we were in Matthew 7, and we had talked about a little bit of a recap here. We were talking about the starting point for addressing conflict. If you guys remember, in Matthew 7, Jesus speaks about us examining first the plank in our eye before, before removing the speck in our brother's eye. And we talked about the starting point to addressing conflict is first examining our side of the street before we go to our neighbor. And I think that was the biggest key that we had to sit on there is, is sometimes in this world we are so quick to be on the defensive and then quickly on the retaliation side. And Jesus wanted to make it very clear that it's a stop for a second and examine first your own home and your side of the street and see why these things that we see as unacceptable might not be so unacceptable. Or maybe the reason we find them unacceptable is because they're the same things that burden us or that we might burden other people with. And lastly, we talked about Matthew 7, how how even in conflict, God can teach us about ourselves even when it comes with conflict in other people. And so we talked about the uh, criticizing of other people. We even talked about conflict with other people and that there's something that God may be trying to teach us. And now we get to go right into what I kind of hold dear as one of my favorite passages because every day I feel like I have some kind of conflict. Now, this may come as some surprise to you, My wife and I have been married for six years and we've been together for 12 years. I married my high school sweetheart and we were best friends, then a couple, went to all the dances and the proms together, all the awkward poses, every single awkward hairstyle and we are still here today. And this may come as a surprise to you, but we fight. Um, I know you may be thinking... Joe, you work at the church, your wife and you don't ever fight, you guys wake up, and it's like an episode of Leave It to Beaver, your son just wakes up, and he just greets you with a good morning, mother and father, and it's just something out of a Disney show, it is not, it's, most mornings it's a little chaotic, it's our son screaming, uh, because he really doesn't like being in his crib, and we're trying to put him in the crib lately, and it's him jumping up and down, like he is just some kind of, just some, some crazy jumping bean. And every jump looks like he's about to fall out of his crib while he's screaming. We have to bring him in. And then he falls back asleep immediately, sprawling out amongst us. And my wife and I passively argue about who needs to move over on the side of the bed so that each of us can get 10 more minutes of sleep. We argue. Sometimes we argue about things that don't matter. Sometimes we argue about things that matter a lot to her. Sometimes we argue about things that matter a lot to myself. But the point is that we argue. I argue with my friends. We disagree because we have different belief systems. I argue with my family because some of us have differing opinions on the way we choose to live our lives. But at the end of the day, one of the biggest things is when you argue with somebody and you have a conflict with somebody, most of the time, it's because we care. And I think before we dive into this this method of, of what we're called to do, we need to remember first... If we didn't care, it wouldn't bother us. And when you could start to remember, I care, then you could really start to right-size, okay, I really want to do these things because I care, even if it's with a stranger. You see, Christ gave us the sense of community. He gives it when we become believers. We want to take on that heart of Jesus. And Jesus cared, especially for those who never did for him. So, when we come with this mindset of like well, care, it kind of helps us shape up this passage. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew 18. And I like to take the time in reading through this and break down these parts here. But if you guys have your Bibles or not, it's going to be here on the screen. And I'll read it out to you. It says, If your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him. Rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. In verse 16, But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. In verse 17, it goes on to say, if he pays no attention to them, tell the church. But if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. And it finishes off in 18, I assure you, Whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth is already lost in heaven. You see, like I said earlier, I want to take the time to break these things down in this passage because I believe that in this passage there's these three parts in conflict resolution. I know we can read that whole thing and say that's, that's it and we can pack it up and say that's what I needed to do. But I think for me... I've always been a person that needs to understand why. I was one of the more annoying children that would always be the one that every time I was told to do something, I would say, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? Well, why? And I know that in God's perfect humor and his perfect humility that I'm sure my children are going to do the same thing to me. And I'm going to be like, man, I'm going to call my mom one day and apologize for the many years of my childhood, in which I did the same thing. But I wanna break it down here, and the breakdown is this, is part one is the method. The method in which we're supposed to handle conflict. Part two, the madness behind it. And we'll kinda get into what I'm talking about there. And part three, the reward. And I promise you this, as we stick through this together, there is a reward. But before we continue on, I'd like to take some more time and really, really let the Holy Spirit lead in this talk. Because I know for a lot of us out there, we have outstanding conflict with people. We have outstanding conflict with family. I have outstanding conflict with friends, family, strangers, church, church people. And I think when we just take the time Right now, to let the Holy Spirit help us examine our side of the street as we dive into this, the reward will really start to be right sized and why this is all so worth it. Amen. So let's pray and let's invite the Holy Spirit into this talk. Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you were king above all. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the method. Thank you for the madness and thank you for the reward, God. We don't fully understand, God, what it is that you've called us to do every single day, specifically as individuals. But we know what we're called to do as a body of believers, as part of your kingdom, God. So as we continue to pursue that, while pursuing the individual plan that you had made for us that is so much better than anything we could try to make for ourselves, help us in the troubleshooting. Help us to see, God, when there's something that's worth fighting for. That there's something that's even worth more than fighting for that's worth resolving so that we can come and understand the importance that you have and why you would tell us that we should resolve conflict with brothers and sisters. So Holy Spirit, as we sung earlier, you are welcome in this place. Come flood the atmosphere, every home, living room, bedroom, family room, this room. Fill the atmosphere so that we could see your glory, God, and we could be a part of your victory. So, Lord, we love you, and we praise you, and we ask this in your blessed and holy name. And all the church said, amen. So let's dive right into it. Part one, the method. And I'm going to break this down for you here. The method is really in this first chunk here from 15 down to 17. And the method is pretty simple. It's actually laid out pretty well. And I wanted to highlight a few words for you here. First off, if your brother sins against you, the first part of this method is if your brother or sister has sinned against you, go. You go. I can't tell you how many times I have sat with friends, and I have been guilty of this for so many years, but when I made this small shift, and I didn't even follow through with the rest of the method, when I made that small shift from the you go, from the you and tell my friends about it, from the you and gossip about that person, from the you, and just, just vent a little bit. When I went from the you to the go, I instantly started seeing my relationships strengthen because there was no festering of this conflict. You see, it's, it's very similar. Sin is very, is, is very similar, and I've, I've heard it said before, is like a tumor, right? The heart of this, of this disease is that this tumor, and the longer we let it sit and untreated, it just begins to spread, and eventually it spreads so much that there's just no saving this, this thing, and now we have the honor and just the grace of God who comes in and says, I'm the great physician. I can heal all things that when we can come to Jesus, that there is no There's no festering, no spreading that that has done enough damage that it can't be redeemed. And we should rejoice for that. But why would we put ourselves through the constant pain and the weakening and the struggling and the potential long-term effects on our relationships when we can go? So the first step of this method is if they go and sin against us, We must go to them, to meet them where we're at. And if that's not the story of Jesus, I don't know what is. But it goes on and says, you go and rebuke them in private. In private. This is a huge part of it. When you start to call out people in front of other people, and we skip steps, what happens is it doesn't feel as much as a conversation, It doesn't feel like your feelings are going to get to be validated. What it feels like is it feels like an ambush. When we skip the method and we go right to the second part, this person might just get to the defensive and the retaliation. But when we can come to people one-on-one, just as our relationship with our Heavenly Father is at first, a one-on-one relationship, and in private say, hey, something you did, it really affected me. And I, 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 did some, I took some time to myself, and I didn't speak to anybody else. And I, I examined myself, and I examined why I found that unacceptable. And I, I, I found some things, and God really showed me some things in my life that I needed to work on. And then after I'd done that, I, I wanted to come to you and let you know. Because I believe that, that you didn't want to do this thing to me. I didn't, that You didn't really want to hurt me, or maybe you did. I just want to know in private. And if that works, it says simply, if he listens to you, You've won your brother. If. I think a big part of this is that we have to really look at the power of these words. If. You see, these people still have free will. We can't just say, well, I talked to them in private and they didn't listen, so now I can just go out and gossip about them, or now I can just cut them out of my life completely. If. You see, if we are called to be the representation of the ministry of Jesus Christ, We must represent the same way he forgave. The same way that he offers grace every single day. Even when we don't deserve it. Because there's days we wake up and he offers grace. And he wonders if we will accept it and live in it and walk in it and speak in it. He wonders if we are going to live out the calling he has for us. He's going to wonder if... We're going to fall into the same temptations or the same patterns or the same sins, but he always pushes through. And so if we as Christians are called in this word to love other people in a world that desperately needs the love of God, we need to appreciate and respect the if. If he listens to you, You have won your brother or sister back. Amen. Hallelujah. That's great. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. Now, what I want to get to this is is that when we hear this statement, every fact may be established. This may come across controversial, and I want to unpack this a bit. I'm a big advocate, and I don't say advocate. I would say I'm a big, um, what's the word? I guess you could say a fan of of U.S. presidents and presidential facts. Um, Whenever we go to youth camps, every single day, I'll take the boys' group and the guys' group, and I will give them a presidential fact, just a random fact or a presidential quote. Uh, There's just something about when I was in school, like I was just, I loved history. I love learning about people's actions and how they impact the future and the present. Uh, In fact, today we were just talking uh, with the team in the back here, uh, just talking about different things that presidents have done and different weird quirky facts. Uh, A couple that I know off the top of my head was that some of the weirdest um, pets that have been in the White House was that uh, President Hoover once had a pet uh, crocodile, that he had in the White House, and he just let it roam free. Uh, there's tons of other weird facts that uh, President Teddy Roosevelt would ride bull mooses, which are these huge, very territorial animals, and somehow was able to like hunt this game but also ride them across rivers, just the most Tarzan-type thing. And I say this because I once heard an amazing quote from President, uh, President Teddy Roosevelt. And he had said, nobody cares about what you know if they don't know that you care. And that was huge because he's stating, nobody cares about these facts that you may have and no, ma- no matter how right you may be, it won't matter to them and it will fall upon deaf ears if they don't think that you, the person who's sharing these facts are sharing them out of love. And you're sharing them out of the sheer fact that you care. And in the moment and in conflict, it can feel like when someone's being told their issue or told how they've fallen short, that they can feel like maybe they just don't care about them. But what would it look like if we as Christians decided, I'm going to have every fact established, and that fact being that their feelings are validated. That how you feel about me coming to you is valid. Because if I don't validate your feelings and how you responded to me and how it affected me, how can I expect you to validate mine? And it's so countercultural. Because Jesus was countercultural. Such a rebellious thought. If I, if I want to love people and I want people's lives to change for the better, I have to first be willing to walk this walk with them. I can't just tell them the change and leave them on their own. I have to be there in their mess with them. I have to validate how hard the road is for these people. I have to validate their human condition and offer them grace even when they have not offered me grace back. I have to offer them love even when every day it feels like I'm never gonna hear it back from them. So when you have these these witnesses that the testimony of what the conflict is and it's right-sized by these unbiased people but then everyone's feelings are also made valid. That you can say, this person said this because they felt this way about you. And you could say, that's fair and I hear you and that's valid. But when you said that, it made me feel this way. And from there saying, I, did you mean to make me feel that way? And they could say yes or no. And then it's established by these people. It continues on if he pays no attention to them, tell the church. I want to go back to the top. You go in private by the testimony of two or three others, every fact being established, then... Tell the church. I've been a part of many sized churches. I've been a part of a mega church and uh, a church of over 5,000 people. I've been at a church a little bit smaller, 1,000 people, and and here at our church here. And one thing that always tears apart congregations is that people read this first verse and they skip right down to seventeen. They go right to their communities and tell all the dirty laundry and air it all out. And gives no chance for the person to express where they're at. I'm guilty of this. I know our staff may be guilty of this. Everyone is guilty of this. Because we also suffer from the same human condition. And when our feelings are are made to feel like they're held hostage to other people by their actions. We we want to save those feelings because we understand the hurt. We've gone through the hurt. We've done the walk of trying to be these communal beings and seen the damage other people can do. And it says, when we just tell the church, the seeds start to spread the gossip gets there, and it becomes this giant game of telephone. In fact, it's even worse than telephone. We play this game sometimes in uh, the student ministry where we we do uh, telephone charades. And in the history of us playing the game, I think per game we'll have 15 to 20 different prompts. And it's a simple game. It's like telephone. If you've never played telephone, you have a long line of people, and you have someone at the beginning usually whisper something in someone's ear, And then they whisper that in another person's ear, and you go down this long train of people, and by the end, you see how different that sentence was. But telephone charades is where someone's given a word, and they tap the person next to them, and they act out that thing. And they continue to go down the line until it gets to the very end. And what started as someone acting out the World Series ends with somebody acting out a luau, (laughs) at the end everyone just looks ridiculous people are frustrated and it's kind of what happens when we skip steps so finally we tell the church with the same heart of love not coming so that people are removed or telling people hey I, i just can't do this not to walk away it doesn't say any of that here just tell the church but if he doesn't pay attention even to the church Let him be like an unbeliever and a tax collector to you. Now, I want to preface this because we read that and we as Christians go, an unbeliever and a tax collector, so they're just bad people. Just cut them out. And I really want to point back to this word, And I want you to look in this word and read the red letters and see all the times in which Jesus interacts with an unbeliever and a tax collector. Does he, like, enact with these people, interact with them? Does he shun them? Does he cut them out? Does he go, not my problem? In fact, the unbeliever, the tax collector, The down and outer, those are the people whom Jesus came for. Those people, including the religious leaders, the Jewish Pharisees, those who knew so much of the Word of God, who were so certain their Messiah had come for them, but here comes Jesus and says, not just you, everybody. Regardless of their social stature, regardless of their holiness, regardless of how many mistakes they've made, everyone, the reason you and I are even here in this moment, listening to these words, studying these words, and we have access to it, is because how Jesus chose to react to humankind after all of its sin and all of its... Disconnect and the chasm it continued to build between ourselves and the living God, our Creator. And He chose to treat us like an unbeliever and a tax collector, and He set forth that method. That even in the end of conflict, when we don't get our way, we're not called to default to factory settings of the human condition, but rather to react how Jesus loves those. And remind ourselves of John 3.16. That God loved the world. That he gave his only son. That whoever. Believed. Regardless if they were once an unbeliever. A tax collector. A thief. A liar. A gossiper. A Pharisee. A president. A government official. A police officer. A person of color. That all people would have everlasting life. If we as Christians can go through this method, what would the world start to look like? Now, that's the method, but the madness in this. It says here in verse 18, I assure you, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven and whatever you lose on earth is already lost in heaven. And breaking this down too is the first part is Jesus is assuring us. And if there's one thing for certain that you can that you can take to the bank when it comes to this word of God is that when Jesus says truly truly I assure you it is a promise. That our God is a promise keeper. And in this in this day and age and in all the times in which I've tried to question God's tactics, question God's methods, and and question the madness behind these completely revolutionary and rebellious ideas that he's spoken out about, the promise has always remained true. So he says, I assure you, whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven whatever you lose on earth is already lost in heaven. You see, friends, I love the fact that we end this with an assurance. Because it kind of gives me a deep breath of knowing that he's promising me. You know, when I was a young kid, um, all the way from first grade to fifth grade, I was an honor roll student. And I really, really took pride in being an honor roll student. Not just because I liked having the grades or like being up in front of the people during an assembly. I liked it because it was one day where they invited all the parents out and the parents would come and they'd get to have their child celebrated in front of all these other parents. And I thought, like, when I first got it, it, it gave this sense of pride. My grandmother would come out. My, my mom would come out. And I remember when I was in about the fourth grade, it was the first time that when I got honor roll that my biological father didn't come. And I told him, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm getting this award. It's this day. And he had been already kind of flaking on me at times, and he didn't show up. And there was something about him saying he would, and then at that young age, looking out, and even though my mom was there, my grandma was there, my siblings are there watching me, and all of my peers are watching me, I'm looking for the one person, and I couldn't help but feel crushed. It really affected my grades, my grades, I didn't want to try to get honor roll the next year. So I thought, what's the point? But the big shift came when I was in fifth grade. And my stepfather, my dad now, when I was trying to get my grades around, he, he really leaned into me and he said, don't you want to try to get that honor roll again? You've had it every year. And you could say that you could have it all all through elementary school, going into middle school. And I had mentioned, what's the point? It doesn't matter. And he goes, well, I want to be there. And I remember him telling me the promise that he would be there. And when I did get that honor roll, when I got to look out and he is there in his work uniform, taking off work to make sure that he fulfills that promise to a kid, It was the best feeling in the world. That moment will forever be bound with me. With many other moments that shaped the love that I have for my dad and the respect I have for him. Memories that we will look back upon when we enter into the kingdom of God after this life into the next. But I won't remember is what job he had, what position he was in. I won't remember that he was just my stepdad at that time, or I don't even know if he was my stepdad. I think he was just dating my mom. You see, the titles, the the things, the fortunes, the status, the social placement, those things are things that when we enter in the kingdom of God, there are no political parties when you enter the kingdom of God. There are no no subgroups where certain people get higher rankings. You enter in a child of God. And you enter in with the relationships in which you bound together. I've heard it once said so beautifully that all you have in this world are relationships. And how I know that to be is that you never see a hearse. Trailing a U-haul with somebody's stuff. But what you do see is all the people filling their chapels and gathering around their gravesites to remember this relationship that's not gone, but is put on pause for when they enter eternity. And I don't know about you where you're at. There are so many relationships, fresh one on my heart, that I can't wait to enter to eternity and pick up where we left off. That they're so bound to me that you almost can't forget them and they leave this lasting impact that impacts other relationships and how you choose to love people. I had shared with my wife, we had had finally picked a a name for our our, our newborn child that's coming. Uh, His name's Dallas. Dallas. And we were telling our families, and she had called her grandma and her mom. And I called my mom. I had texted my brother. I texted my sisters. And then I, and uninstinctively, I picked up my phone, and I, I called my grandma. And the line was dead. It just said this number was no longer in service. And as much as in the temporary moment, there was this disappointing of Man, I really wish she could know there was a part in knowing the conflict that even it was with me internally and right-sizing and examining the plank in my eye, going through these steps, talking it out with two or others, bringing it to the church so they know my hurt, that I was able in that moment to go, she does know. And it's okay. And that when I enter into eternity... I will not have lost anything but it's just even more bound to her that when I enter, she has the perfect seat to this life in which I've been called to live and raise my children, to lead my calling, to just being the child of God, God intended me to be. You see, the madness in all of this comes from the fact that we even have to be in relationships. I mean, when you think about it, all of this stuff is just stuff we have to do to maintain these relationships. And we can't help it because we were designed to be such relational beings. I mean, in Genesis, God himself even says, man was not meant to live alone. And so for us, being in a relationship is something that you just, you just pick up on. Some of us are slow learners as we get, as we get you know, older. It comes later in life. Some of us are such social butterflies. But I mean, it's just this natural ordinance. God designed us to be in community. That's why it's so hard to be meeting this way not in person in front of a bunch of people but I like to think back on this example that really stepped in me God like why why would you call us to relationship why can't we just individually work on our own our own things I know my introverts out there are going preach 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 why do I have to be in relationship with people why does he make it sound so simple That's the madness in it. You see, being in a relationship with people is like riding a bike. And I remember when I was a young kid, I would would ride bikes in the neighborhood. And there's something about when you buy a kid a bike, this is my son's little radio flyer, um, he does less riding and more just sitting in it, leaning to the side and trying to eat the handlebars. But there's something about when you give a, a child a bike and let him loose in the neighborhood, you're not just giving him a bike and a form of exercise and a toy, you're almost giving him an icebreaker to the kids. It's just like, I'm going to go ride bikes with the neighbor kids. And you see them out there and they're this, every, every 80s adventures, it's like, how, do, how, do, how does this happen? How do... Kids like in Stranger Things or in the Goonies get into these things where they're looking for pirate ships or multiple dimensions. Well, we're just riding bikes, and you're like, that started all that bonding? That's crazy. And it could seem so simple, riding a bike, being pushed around and riding this bike. But in the reality, the madness of it is when we become Christians and we have that heart of God We can't just be stuck riding these these bikes in our circles, and our cul-de-sacs. He's calling us to branch out and to go places that we couldn't even imagine going on our bikes. And he equips us with so much more, but we run the risk of being hurt. It's more actually like riding a bike. Right here, I have my my brother's bike, nice Harley-Davidson, and... And I've, I've tried so hard to get, convince my wife to let me get a motorcycle, and she refuses, and, and sometimes rightfully so, the dangers of this bike. You see, that when we try to learn this conflict resolution and we double down and say, I want to live like Jesus lived, and I want to love like Jesus loved, give me your heart, God, we are choosing to step on the bike, To take us to places that this bike could never take us. But also, running the risk of when accidents happen and we fall into conflict, that we might not walk away the same. But the adventures and the memories. I get so jealous sometimes. I see see my brother posting on his Instagram. Places he goes with his bike and every day. I just look at him and he's he's out at the beach. Different beaches all over. He's out in the city. He's going places all on this bike. And he's able to just get there and also avoid some traffic. Saving gas on these things. I'm really trying to pitch this to my wife as you can see. But the places he can go, I could never get to in the time he does riding this little bike. And I know a lot of us as Christians will say, maybe I'm just not called to ride that bike. Maybe God's called me to ride this bike. And I beg to differ and I challenge you because as Paul says, when I was a child, I, I thought like a child and I acted like a child. I did childish things. But now that I'm a man, I've done away with childish things. There comes a point in our faith walk no matter how many years that we've been believing what we believed, been a part of a congregation, there comes a point where we have to graduate from God pushing us in the circles and enjoying that time. And we have to get on the bike. And I know it's scary. It goes so fast. It's so loud and Accidents can really change your life. I am not be able to walk at some point. I may never never want to get on a bike again after one conflict after another with people. I may never want to ride again. But that's the point. Our Jesus rode on the bike and rode it straight to all the people who were deemed unreachable to places that people thought no one should go, to the tax collector, to the unbeliever, to the Gentile, to the leper, to the prostitute, to the slave, to everyone, and paid the ultimate price when humankind ran him off the road so that he he could pay the price for every single person so that they could step on this bike assured that he would watch over and that we could all see new heights we could all see the adventure that he intended when we live this life on earth and that comes to the reward when we choose to live in community and we try to protect ourselves as much as we can with the armor of God and it looks a little different on the bike we get the reward he finishes off Matthew 18 by saying for where two or three are gathered together in my name I am there among them. If you've been struggling in this time with feeling the presence of God, what would your life look like if you took this downtime to process these conflicts? To check your side of the street, to go through the method, embrace the madness, and see if Jesus follows through on that promise when he says, I am there among them. And I assure you, that will be bound in heaven. People matter. They mattered to Jesus so much he was willing to die for them. What does that say about his his followers of his words and his teaching if we ourselves are not willing to risk our life and limb for the adventure and the chance to have people who are so lost and so disconnected to be found again? I challenge you Do you remember when you were found and how thankful you were? Do you remember when you were so lost and you were found and somebody didn't give up on you? Do you remember when you were no longer a lost thing, you were a found thing? And you were given a name. And for the first time someone spoke your name, it felt like they weren't speaking your sin or your shortcoming. They were saying your name. The name in which the God of the universe knew before you were even born. The name given to you that when he held you in his hand before creation and he knew every mistake, every conflict, every accident that you were going to deal with that he saw it all and at the end he said it was still worth you being created so that you could be loved and known by him and you can possibly share that same love to others. Do you remember when you were found, you stopped thinking and talking in circles and you started living and breathing and loving For eternity. That is my biggest heart. And I'm so willing to talk with any people that are struggling with these areas because I still struggle with them. And it's a daily, daily battle of getting beside myself because my heart is so set for that eternity. Loving people and seeing people be found. It's just a part of the reward that we get because we know the reason they were found is because there he was. Friends, in your homes, there he is. I want to close in this prayer. And in this time, I want you to focus on the conflicts in your life, the pending conflicts, the festering or the non-festering those relationships who have not started mending yet, the relationships that have even started yet, that you start to think about them and start looking at the world less as a bunch of problems that needs a resolution and more of a bunch of lost people that just need their feelings validated but need to be taught how to be found and be met where they're at And to be loved with loving accountability. With validating other people's feelings. And through their actions and our actions, be seen for the first time and hear their name and not their mistakes. I remember when I heard one of our elders, Mike Bartell, preach that one of the first Sundays I was here and it's always stuck with me. When God says your name, it's a beautiful thing. So, Lord, place upon our hearts the conflicts and the relationships, Lord, that need mending and need you. Help us to really examine our side of the street in Matthew 7 and to really walk through the method of how to. Resolve this conflict and the importance of it. Help us to love people even when they don't love us back. Help us to love like you love the church and you love us without records of wrongs or without holding any accounts of our debt to you in this world. Help us to see God, the unseen. Help us to see when people may be offending us or acting unacceptable. Help us to see their need and not the things that we find unacceptable. Help us to love, even when we feel like nobody loves us. And help us to be assured in your love, God, that it's more than we'd ever need to carry us through. God, help us to see when you are amongst us even when it feels like we're not. Help us to embrace the madness. Help us to accept the armor that you give us every day and offer us as we embark on those adventures every day. And help us to just be more thankful for the reward that you would be willing to dwell with people regardless of their conflict with one another. Lord, it's in all those things that I ask, God, that you, you shine so bright that at the end of it all, we could breathe in and go, what a beautiful sight our lives were and the journey in which you took us. I'm ready to enter your kingdom and even further into eternity. So Lord, we love you and we praise you and we ask this in your blessing and holy name. Amen. If you guys don't remember anything from today, remember this. I love you. God bless you, and we'll see you guys next Sunday. And be sure to text AWAKENING to 77977 for all your tithes and offerings. Lord bless you.